over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, welcome to In Context. It's a delight to have you all on the, uh, this is a new venture for us today. We're trying to do some video, introducing a little bit more, uh, hopefully encouraging way to watch things. Let me introduce my guest today. We have Dr. Wendy Witter. Uh, Dr. Witter has been on the program before talking about Daniel. And as I told her when we interviewed, I wish I had to talk to you before I taught the book of Daniel. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Mark Chevalius. Am I saying that right, Mark? Forgive me. Chevalius. Chevalis. Uh, yes. Dr. Chevalis has also been on the podcast before, and you can go look at those interviews to find out their Vita and CV. And Dr. Kevin Zuber. Dr. Zuber and I spent a little time at Moody together and had a great friendship there and growing even now. So thank you all for joining this. We have been doing this a big book series that I tackled a little over a year ago, where each Sunday I try to teach one book of the Bible in an overview fashion. Not your typical day, date, author, but more backing up a little bit and asking the question for people that don't know these books that perhaps aren't going to study them like obviously you all do, but what, what can we give them? And you all were great contributors to that, so we appreciate you coming back to help us wrap up the series. About to finish the whole package, and I, I asked Hannah, who's our executive producer, let's get some of our favorite experts who did such a great job to talk about this big picture concept and uh, I don't have a script. I don't have, uh, I've got a few questions in my head. And if you've got something, you know, Michael, we really need to talk about X. I want you to jump in. But let me just, I'll, I'll start at the end of the alphabet because Dr. Zuber always had to wait to be called on in class when you were a child. So uh, Dr. Zuber, when, when you, Kevin, when you think about, and you're, you're teaching in a seminary, all of you are in some fashion, when you're looking at your students, you're, you're in the weeds, you're, you're scholars, you're subject matter experts. But when you step back a bit, and look at those local ministries, church ministries, missionaries, whatever they're going to be doing in life. How do you help motivate, encourage them to get in this big book and stay in it all their lives? Kevin? Well, one of the biggest problems that we have with a, a sort of big book view of the Bible is really two things. One is it's a book that's got a lot of history in it. And that history is just uh, something that most Christians they don't know it broadly. BC means before I cared. That's it. It's just now, now, now <laughs> too far back. I mean, you know, those are the kind of things. And so trying to sort of put things into a historical flow is very difficult. So if you're trying to do what you did, Michael, I, I did that a couple of times in different pastorates is just do uh, a book, a book of the Bible each Sunday morning uh, in a Sunday school class on a big blackboard before we had PowerPoints and everything like that. Just, you know, just give it, give it overview. And one of the thing I, I would do differently is, is that I would try to do things a little more chronologically. So putting things in sort of a chronological order and put dates to it rather than just the order of the books in the, in the Bible. So that's part of it too. So if you're going to do a grammatical historical uh, hermeneutic, 
getting the history right, I think, is just helpful to understand the flow. And the second thing is, and I think we, you know, I'm a systematic theologian, but we've made great strides in bringing together biblical theology and systematic theology as rather than enemies, as um, co-laborers, I guess, in the, yeah. in the endeavor to do just what you're talking about there, and sort of get the biblical theological flow, the salvation history, I guess, uh, as well as other, you know, the, the broader history. And in some respects, that sounds dry, and you're talking about trying to get the, you know, people interested. Well, well I was going to inject there, when you say the word history, we've lost, the, in the average church, we've lost a lot of our population, unless we had really great history teachers. Yeah, yeah. yeah I right. contend that, yeah, if you've got a great history teacher, then you love, it's the current event of the time. Right. But if yep. you have a boring, droning history teacher in high school or college, you got no interest in learning biblical history. That's the challenge, isn't it? I mean, that's the point is to try and bring that, trying to bring that to life. I've discovered that when you do that and you, you don't have to give detailed history, trying to uh, figure out who Tiglath Pileser is or, uh, you know, pronounce Nebuchadnezzar's name correctly. If you sort of, if you bring some of that out, I mean, I'm sure Wendy would say that too with Daniel, you know, understanding the history of the historical context that Daniel was in is really important. To really get the to get the flow of things, and uh, it's the challenge to make it interesting and bring that biblical theological right. flow out, and just then plug everything in. I, I've I've discovered that people, as a pastor, when people started to get a little bit of that, uh, they would say things like, "Wow, it's making sense to me now. I understand now where things land. You know, where the reading in First and Second Kings, and okay, Hezekiah shows up, and then you say, "Well, this is where Isaiah was," and their eyes light up. Oh, okay, right. so." We, just not something delivered on tablets, you know. Doc, Dr. Witter, Wendy, jump in here. So you spent 10 plus years in Daniel. And <laughs> when, right, right? Yeah. And and Didn't when you away. go to a, to, a, to a group and you're teaching or explaining or walking them through it, I mean, you've got the same challenge. So how do you help them not over, I mean, I had professors that used to say, Michael, don't use Greek and Hebrew in your messages too much because you take the Bible out of people's hands. And they feel like, well, I don't, I can never read it like Dr. Witter because I, you know, how do you help them? Well, I think one of the things that's most helpful for me uh, before I ever teach Daniel is to try to give them the picture of how the chronology of the whole Bible works. You know, Daniel fits in a historical context, but if you just tell them that and rehearse all the history behind it, they're snoring. But there are several resources, and I've adapted some things where I draw a big timeline on the whiteboard, and we just go through the story, because it's a magnificent story from Genesis to Revelation. And once they have a sense of the history told in like one hour, <laughs> you just got to pack it all in, then you can slot where Daniel fits. And then like Kevin was saying, they go, oh, I, I get it. That makes a little better sense. I understand where the people came from, where they're going, and what on earth Daniel's doing where he is. So for me, that's been the most helpful way to give people context. Um, the Bible's a big book, and it's a lot of words, and there aren't very many pictures. <laughs> They're pictures, but we have to paint them. And for me, and I found for some students, it's really helpful to just have a timeline and talk through the events and put the books on the timeline and arrange them in such a way that they go, oh, I get it. So it's visual. I remember the first time, I forget where I was, but the first time someone pointed out to me that 
that Adam and Noah were contemporaries blew my mind for lots of reasons. But again, the timeline. So, Mar- so Kevin, you use a blackboard and a timeline. Wendy uses a, a whiteboard and a timeline. <laughs> we're progressing technologically here. <laughs> Mark, how about you? How do you get your students to be interested in the text, not bored by it? Well, I use clay tablets, but um, <laughs> that, that's that's what the joke is, of course. And by the way, that crack about Tiglath-Pileser, of course, uh, being a Mesopotamian uh, scholar, I, I would tongue-in-cheek take issue with it because, of course, my first question is, which one do you mean? There's a couple of them. But anyway. You're right, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I— Yes, I think I'd probably approach this a little differently, and it's not that I'm right or wrong. It's just because of my own background, being raised as a Christian— but uh, not knowing any better. And so I went to school and I, I loved history and I loved the Bible. I didn't know how to combine them. And so, and not knowing any better, I didn't go to Bible school. I went to secular schools. And so all of my training is secular. And somehow I was able to come out of that still with an evangelical faith. And from that, it means that, of course, when I've been teaching, I've been teaching in a secular context, which I've been doing for nearly 40 years now. And so uh, it's interesting when you mention how do you get people interested in the Bible. For me, you know, of course I have Christians in my class, but overwhelmingly I have, have students who either have no interest in the Bible, no knowledge of the Bible, or are antagonistic towards it whatsoever. And so my goal is to put the Bible in the context of other ancient books that we're looking at showing them, oh, this book is no different than these other books. It actually provides just as interesting history. It's just as formidable as looking at a classical writer like Plutarch or or looking at cuneiform documents or the like. And so they begin to realize, oh, the Bible does have some merit. Then I, I begin to try to show them my passion, like this is really fun. I I kind of like to try to figure out how to pronounce Nebuchadnezzar's name in Akkadian rather than uh, how the Hebrews uh, must have botched it in, in their script or, or even Tiglath-Pileser or, 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 or things like that. And so I'll have students afterwards, especially if we're dealing with a particularly difficult text in the Bible. Uh, I remember one, one guy raised his hand in the middle of the class and said, excuse me, sir, is this the Holy Bible? Uh, and what he meant was, I didn't, I didn't hear about this story in Sunday school. I didn't, it, it never occurred to me that they had such difficulties or Wow. And I and I tell them, oh, the Bible has everything in there. It's very raw. It's got some very, very difficult things. In fact, it's got lots of stuff in there that I cannot easily resolve. And so I remember even when I came to the faculty at University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, most of whom were atheists in my department, they were always asking me biblical questions. And quite often, they would be asking questions that with our current state of knowledge, could not be reconciled or resolved. And so I would be telling them, hey, that's a really good one. I'm going to study it for you and come back. And they appreciated it rather than simply giving them, you know, this answer that. Well, I do the same thing with students where we'll we'll talk about these issues. And so the best thing that happens to me at the end of the semester, if somebody comes up and says, hey, you know, I was raised as a Catholic or I was raised as a Lutheran and, and but the Bible didn't really, you know, we, we sort of looked at it, but I, I have this whole new view of it now. And so I, 
I look at myself uh, perhaps differently than somebody that teaches at a Bible college or a seminary. Maybe it's pre-evangelism where I'm getting them intellectually prepared for the next step. Right. Uh, that next step could happen in my office, hopefully uh, if we're back in the office soon. But, but you know, that things like that could happen in my office or it could be somebody else that works through them. Now, let, I let have me, to also run – go yes. Let, let go me ahead. interrupt. Let, let me ask a question because, um, again, you all have been doing this a long time. This type of technology, these tablets and phones, uh, are your students primarily using tablets or phones or are they – using notebooks? What are they doing when they're in class? I can't well, answer that very I'll... well because I'm online sure. most of the time. Sure. So my students okay. are online. <laughs> okay. Kevin? Well, in my class, they, because of COVID and stuff, you know, we've, we've allowed. Let, let me ask, pre-COVID, pre-COVID, were we, were, are, were you seeing a growth in phone use versus pen and paper or even notebook? It was about 50-50, honestly. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's from, quite a from few your pedag- From your pedagogies, where you've lived and breathed, yeah. has there been a diminished retention or interest in doing something on a phone versus a book? Yeah, again, I would say about about 50-50. I mean, you know, there, there's there's some people that, you know, are addicted. They've got, they got the virus, and they're addicted to their screens. And you just have to sort of, you know, work with that. I mean, I'm, you know, again, it's not, it's just because I'm ancient, but because I do try to sort of uh, teach students not material in class is that I do things so that they got to get their eyes up off the phones or anything. So I do stuff on the board. I do some PowerPoints. I do some moving around in class. I try to make the living moment in the classroom more important than what's going on, you know, on their screen. And and, and I appreciate that. that. But, but again, I, I'm not asking the question accurately. From the consuming student, he or she, are they using those devices more? And do you see a, a better retention, a better knowledge base, or less? Again, I would say that Can't. it's the you know the the computers actually do. I mean, you can take more notes faster, so they do okay. get more, and they keep it more than if they if they wrote it out by hand. I think, but it's still IQ applied to a problem. I mean, and the point is, that the more they're engaged, they get it. The better students would do well if they didn't have computers and the poor students wouldn't do any better if you gave them more technology. Mark, what do you think? Well, I'm also uh, very old fashioned. I'm sure it's not because of my age, but I think I, I tell my students often at the very beginning of the semester, uh, because I still encourage them to take handwritten notes. And I tell them, I said, when you're taking handwritten notes, your retention is much higher than if you're simply looking at a screen. And I, and I give them an example. I remember one time, this is you know years ago when I was in graduate school, I, I missed a class one day and had to talk to a student. Hey, I'd like to you know look at your notes. Well, of course, this is before Xeroxing or anything. And so I had to go home and, and rewrite the notes out. Wow. And I found out, oh my goodness, I retained twice as much as if I had been there myself. And of course, that's very idealistic, but I, I try to tell the students, if you do it the old-fashioned way, you are going to retain a lot more. Of course, we can use these. I, I, I'm just beginning to figure out how to now use the computer screen on a big screen and show them maps and show them documents as I'm working through it, et cetera. But I encourage them not to be passive by simply looking at it, but 
you know, actively writing things down. Oh, this is my perception of what I'm looking at or, right. or that. And um, it doesn't always work, but that's going to be my ultimate goal. Wendy, how about you? You said mostly well, online, but. Yeah, I, I sort of have a hodgepodge of what I do. So it's hard to answer that question directly, but I would echo Mark that handwriting I mean, I think the studies would back it up, too, that when you write something, you learn it better and you think your brain thinks differently and it just logistically, it takes longer. So it yeah. slows you down. And one of the things sort of related when I started taking Greek and Hebrew and having to translate passages that were really familiar to me, but when you have to translate them it slows you down to this crazy slow speed, yes. <laughs> you're, you know, slogging yeah. through BDB. I'm like, ah, but man, you just see it in a different way because yes. you are crawling through it. So the pace, there's something to be said for the old fashioned methodical way of just writing. I just came out of a, a seminar recently that for chartered schools, they were talking about grammar, diagramming and cursive being the three most important ways they taught. Wow. And it blew my mind. And the studies on neuroplasticity and neuroscience with, with the pressure of a pen, if you're familiar with was NILD, NILD years ago came up with this rhythmic writing for kids that were dyslexic or attention deficit or, or audio processing deficiencies. And they do a writing program and they go from, let's say, six months behind their age grade to six months ahead in about three to four months doing these neurosynaptically designed repetitive handwriting. But I, I, we're off in the weeds. But I was just curious from your teaching perspective what you're seeing in retention and how students engage because they talk about thumb typing which you lose all the benefit of the things we've been talking about. Let's, let's go back a little bit to the big picture of the scripture. Uh, how would you, if you were, you were the dean with curriculum in your existing area, what would you say these are the one, two, three things we must do to get folks back in the text, a love for the scripture, a love for reading? You've all mentioned timelines and chronologies and big pictures. What else would you say? Well, one of the things that we try to do here is – as a sem in a seminary, we get students that have gone to Bible college or uh, have grown up in a Christian church, you know, Bible teaching church, which it may or may not, you know, help in some respects. But in any case, or, or we get guys that have gone to a, uh, you know, a secular school. When I started seminary, I'd gone through college and I had a BA in Bible and I'd already taken two years of Greek. And I started seminary with a guy that got a degree in animal husbandry from uh, Ann Arbor, you know, from the University of Michigan. So it was tough for him. So we recognize we get students at all different levels. And so one of the things, again, that we sort of have sort of taken another look at our survey classes. And again, sometimes survey classes can be really helpful or sometimes they can just be, you know, doing something so that we feel like, well, we gave them a chance because there was the survey class, but it was like trying to take a sip out of a fire hose. You know, that, it becomes way too fast. So I think one of the things we try to encourage is just what you're talking about. It just in our survey classes, there's a textbook, but we try to, you know, let's read the scriptures. Let's read the scriptures. Back in the Moody days, Michael, when we were back there, the survey classes required students to actually yeah. read the Old Testament all the way through. And in the New Testament survey, to read the New Testament through twice. In some respects, 
especially in, at an academic level, you sort of lose the value of that, of reading through. So uh, I did again this year what I've done in past years is I read I read the whole Bible in four months in addition to everything else. So Would that, that could, take you about an hour a day? Sometimes. I mean, I didn't do it every day, So, but I kept a little notebook and things, plus the fact that I read, I would read certain parts multiple times. Right. In four months, I read through Psalms 25 through 34, 50 times. Wow. Just those, just those Psalms over and over yep. again. But it was that quick readings that, you know, that right. fast reading going through. And I did it honestly because I got to First and Second Chronicles and I looked at every single name. I mentally <laughs> went through it. I know I'm not retaining anything and this is just a pedantic exercise, but I read every word. And then other places, you know, you read it, you catch yourself getting caught up in the story and you and you just keep reading. Yes. I, want, I know it's coming next, but I want to see it again. I want to read it. So we emphasize that just, you know, there's Bible reading. And there's really just no replacement for it. It's hard as a scholar. I'm sure the others would say the same thing. Is you, you come across something and you want to first you look at the footnote and your study oh, Bible. Oh, it's a rabbit hole. Yeah, you go. Encyclopedia. And then you want to keep chasing something else yeah. down. And it's a discipline at this point to just, no, I'm going to just keep reading. I'll, I'll come back to that question later. But just read it. That You know, and folks need to hear that because I use the Logos software. I'm an early adopter. I live in it. But when it comes to devotions and reading, I have to just use my text. Otherwise, I'm in a word study and, you know, mm -hmm. Wendy mentioned BDB. I mean, I just, boom, I'm gone. So I have to just use that. And I have colored pens. A friend of mine says, Michael, I don't know if you've read the Bible, but you've colored most of it, you know, because I draw <laughs> in it, right? Because um, I have my line morning by morning new verses I read. But but uh, again, I'll pose the same question quickly to Mark and Wendy. Uh, Beyond the timeline, beyond getting them, how, how do you motivate, encourage, and people in general to get their nose in the book? Well, I had a seminary professor who recommended exactly what Kevin was just talking about. And I don't know if it was required or not, but I did it. And he said, read it just as fast as you can. Just wow. skim, read. And I thought, well, what's kind of the point of that? But the point of it was, is I finally backed away from all of this the individual stories and because I got from Genesis, you know, to the prophets and all that faster, I remembered some of the things that were in Genesis and it all somehow fit together. I recently gave that challenge to a, a class and a couple of them did it, a couple of them didn't, but the ones who did are like, man, I just see it differently. So that, that's helpful. Mark, yeah, that's great. Mark? Well, uh, obviously, because of because of my background, I have a different, a little different perspective. I think that what they're saying is exactly what I like to do for myself personally. But for example, I do teach a course on ancient Israel, just like I teach a course on ancient Iran or ancient Mesopotamia okay. at my school. And so I tell them, I said, I'm not going to be giving you an overview of the history of Israel. In fact, I do it. In fact, I do the opposite of what you were talking about. I do it inside out in the sense that we start looking at particular texts to try to figure out what the large part is. And at the end of the semester, I tell them, all right, this is a course that should be called Materials for the Study of Ancient Israel. And when we're all done, I tell them tongue in cheek, now you're ready to study ancient Israel because we've looked at the particular documents trying to figure out this or that, and then they should be able to themselves come up with their overview. I sort of learned this, by the way, Kevin, I think that you'll appreciate this. When I was a, a young man, uh, my mother decided that she couldn't understand 
the uh, new pastor at our Presbyterian church in Southern California. So she had heard about this hotshot pastor who basically did the Bible uh, line by line, and it would take lo- a long, long time. And so this was 1969. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I sat listening to John MacArthur for about 20 years. And then, by the way, I'm one of the only people I know that uh, actually taught uh, occasionally at the seminary out there when it first came out, but I've never been to seminary uh, at all. And so I thought that was rather ironic. But I, but I, he actually had a big impact on me in a general way and just looking at the text, working through line by line, which I, which I do with all the documents I look at, whether you know, secular, biblical or not, and then trying to come up with that overview. And I also tell them sort of tongue-in-cheek, that I don't think the Bible actually is a history book, but I do think it is a the writer's theological reflection on a history that is probably already well known to the reader. And so I do things like that. And then lastly, I tell classes, especially when they aren't particularly interested, I said, you know, if you become a Christian, you're adopted into a new family. And let's just say I adopted someone into my family and they said, well, I'm really glad that you're my dad, but I really have no interest in what the Chevalis name means or where you came from and when, or the fact that your family came across on a boat in 1908 and et cetera. I'm just not interested in that. And I said, well, that would be sort of odd. So of course, if you become a Christian, don't you want to know about your family? This is your family. Mm-hmm. And then try to personalize it for them. Uh, because I think it's too easy to get caught up in the minutia. I think I I know myself personally. This is also a hobby, and so sometimes it becomes my hobby, and I forget about the person behind the hobby, mm-hmm. God. Yeah, uh, and that's a constant struggle that I have. Yeah, you, you, interesting, Mark. That you know, MacArthur took forty years to get <laughs> the New Testament line by line. I remember he. I, I remember the story back at Moody that Jerry Jenkins said when they first started up the the process of publishing all of his uh, the commentaries. Now uh, over thirty volumes, he said to uh, Phil Johnson, "You know this could probably take ten years." <laughs> it took took forty years. When MacArthur <laughs> finished with the the New Testament after he he made it through the Gospel of Mark was the last uh, gospel he went through. It was the last book. One of the ladies in the church said, came up and said, are you going to preach through the Old Testament now? And MacArthur <laughs> says, neither you or I would be alive long enough to see that happen. But, yeah, uh, exactly. But, uh, I think, again, I liked your comment, Mark, when you said that the Bible's not a book of history, which is very true. I mean, the, the Gospels are not a biography. And especially, I wrote the commentary in the Moody Bible commentary. I wrote the First and Second Chronicles, and that's very much a theologically driven history. It's all yes. about the Davidic dynasty. Yes. And the point there is, it just goes back to reinforce what we said. I mean, because it's not trying to tell us history, but because it assumes, as you said, that the reader is going to know that history. That's the part that, again, you got to go back and sort of let people know that there was a lot of intuitive or implicit knowledge that the authors expected the readers to have that obviously we don't. I mean, this is why it's, you know, we, we have to go back and reconstruct that difficult in the days of, you know, deconstruction and reader response theory, you know, that's, that's where, Hey, I'm well, doing and this, this is my contention yeah. with the local church because we're handicapped at two levels. We don't well, actually three, we don't like history. We don't know American history, which is 244 years. 
how do we expect people to want to know several thousand years of history? And the task of the exegete and the expositor today and the teacher is so different. Howard Hendricks, who taught for over 60 years at Dallas, made the comment, every incoming class had less biblical literacy. And you do that over the decades, and you see what we have today. They don't know Tiglath-Pileser. They don't even know who David is. I often refer to 2 Samuel 7. If you don't understand the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, you're at a loss before you even open its book. Because, you know, if we said the Gettysburg Address, if we said the Continental Congress, if we said, you know, whatever, three branches, how many people do you know could name the three branches of government without having to look on their phone? Yeah, they know I'm not a bill. I'm just a bill. I'm only a bill, and that's the extent of there their you go. civics. There you uh, go. I don't know anything beyond that. So, again, let me, let me toss this to Wendy. So you're teaching a different sphere because you're, you're really uh, focused in Daniel. I hear you're coming out with a new commentary on. Yeah, I'm kind of a one-trick pony sometimes. It's the story of just how that's my good. life has gone, but so it is. Um, yeah, the in the Zikot series with Sondervan, which is Sondervan exegetical commentary in the Old Testament. That's what it is. So hopefully this year still. And then I'm, I think I'm done on Daniel because I really can't do any more without plagiarizing myself. <laughs> so I just got to stop. As I said before, yeah. But so my question to you is, you know, when, when you're writing at that intricacy and that level of depth, do you at times step back and go, how in the world do we, you know, get, the average person, I hate to say that, but you know what I'm talking about. The person that's not in your world, not in mine, how do we help them? This is this is the Word of God. This is not just a document of history or, the, or just theology. This is a document of God's revelation to man that he might long to live for him, to love him, to glorify him, to own his sin, to change, to repent. I mean, these are big things, and we don't even understand the history other than what I read on my Instagram feed today. Well, I think part of it is to capture the significance. So leave the minutiae aside, because they're not going to look at that first anyway. And what is the gospel? You know, there's good news, and it's good because there's bad news. And if you can capture where people hurt, where they itch where they feel something because it's there. You know, the text is applicable across all of those kinds of issues. So if you can scratch that, then you can begin to go deeper. I recently heard a podcast with Carmen Imes, who's Old Testament professor and um, scholar, and she tells a story of an Old Testament professor who one of his students complained to him that you know, this is boring. The Bible's boring. And the professor responded, the Bible's not boring. You're boring. You're boring. <laughs> <laughs> but the point was, this story is magnificent, and it is relevant, and you are in it. And if you're, if we can't help people see that, and, you know, that's more than this podcast can do in 15 more minutes. How do we help people see that? But if we can capture that for people, then all of the minutia of our lives, forget the minutia of history, of our lives, the trivial things that so occupy us, they get eclipsed by the story. And then you're caught. And we've all been caught 
by that story and how it intersects with our lives and what matters. And as teachers, it's our job to find those connections and grab our students where they feel it. So I can say all that. I can actually tell you how to do it. <laughs> well, no, and, and what, I, what I'm hearing and watching the three of you, you love what you're doing. You're excited about it. One of you can correct me. Who was it? Uh, was it Tom Hume had gone to see? It wasn't Scottish preacher. See, my brain's getting holes as I get older. But anyway, someone leaned over to him and says, you don't believe what this guy is saying. And the journalist who was a professed atheist said, no, but he does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was one of the things for me, Howard Hendricks, and for you, perhaps MacArthur and Chuck Smendall and others, they were so excited about their subject matter. This was the word of God come alive. And I go, well, they're going to be excited about it. Maybe I should be excited about it. And so I hear that in your Maybe you're not intentionally saying it, but you are saying it because you have a passion about what you're teaching. And that's why your students love you and like you and they want to hear from you, right? So how do we transfer that? Hopefully you've got a couple of students in each of your classes that, you know, you're looking for that young man or woman that light goes on, right? And then you pour into their life and say, you could really be, you know, used by God maybe in, in some language you'd say to them. Maybe God has a, a use for you beyond just X, I don't know. I'm prattling a bit, but I keep going back to this. I feel as a pastor now for most of 40 years, short term at Moody, however, I, f I feel people don't read. They don't have interest. They don't care about history. They're very, I mean, my oriented. They're very instantaneous oriented. And I look at most churches in America and I mean most, they have lost their way. And they're teaching about current events, about social issues. They're not in the word. And you can, you all know, you can teach about the issues of social justice from the text. You can teach about all races mattering from the Bible. But rather than do that, they come up with how-tos or, you know, packaged materials to keep their congregation interested, I guess. One of the ways that, again, I mean, again, as a preacher, as well as as a pastor for many years, as well as a professor, is there's a lot of work, and I'm sure the others would rec recognize this. There's a lot of work in putting into the understanding of the text that then doesn't make its way in either to the lecture or into the pulpit. I mean, it's something that you, you know, it's something that's, that's deeper. So that at the end, like for instance, you know, my, my understanding of the expository preaching is just that when I'm done, I do not want to have somebody come up to me and say, wow, I don't think I ever would have seen that. I want them to say, wow, that's really interesting. I, what the Bible is saying there that they, so if I'm so mystified them so that they, wow, I don't think I've ever seen that. I liken it to going to the theater. If you go to the theater and you see an actor uh, and you walk out and say, that guy was a great actor. You no, he really wasn't. If you walk out of the theater saying that, that Hamlet was messed up. I mean that that guy. Now you, that's that's a successful actor. He made you forget that you're watching an actor, and I don't. I want my students to see the text. I want them to see that my enthusiasm for it. My you know maybe some of my own illustrations maybe put me too much into the into that. But at the end, because I do believe it's the living and active Word of God. My objective is is to so present it so it does that on its own. I'm sure Mark is in the context where he can't get up there and preach to the students, but he wants to have the text itself 
which is more than just the text, to, to sort of present it, it itself in that living and active sort of way. It takes a lot of work on the part of the person doing, you know, the exegete or the preacher or the teacher. It takes a lot of work to do that because you, you have to be the master and be mastered by the text and then let it speak and let the story, as Wendy was saying, let the story sort of capture the person instead of anything uh, artificial, which I think, again, back to your point, Mike and Michael, is, is that I think in, in a lot of churches that work is more than, frankly, a lot of people are willing to invest. Yeah. It's like the difference between, you know, learning how to really prepare another illustration, a good meal, or you can get HelloFresh delivered and think that you're you're cooking at home. Okay, something like that. Again, well, it's at least it's not fast food. Well, sort of, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> who's fooling who here? I mean, that's the, that's the kind of the idea. Mark? Well, I, you know, the particular challenges over the years with students, like I said, that the the students I operate with are like those in the church, that they are becoming more and more biblically illiterate. And the first response might be sorrowful, but then I, I can take it as a direct challenge because one of the advantages, if I can say that in, a, in an odd way, is that it means that when I'm teaching students, I have a blank slate there. They know so little about it. And so, and I often do this even with, with young Christians, I often will not send them to, let's say, the book of John or, or Mark. I'll send them to Genesis because John or Mark, really, if you think about it, don't make a lot of sense unless you understand the Old Testament context uh, to it. Of course, they can make some sense, but but you, if you want the deeper understanding, you have to go back and start with the beginning. Or if I have people ask me, boy, they had polygamy, and in, in, how do you reconcile the fact that the patriarchs were polygamists? I said, did you read the preface? They, what do you mean? Genesis 1 and 2 is the ideal. If you don't read the preface, that'd be like starting in chapter 3 of a book and then getting frustrated because you don't understand what's going on. Uh, read the beginning. And so I do that. And I also try to show them, like I've said before, my own enthusiasm for the material. And I usually tell my students, I'm going to challenge you at the end that you're not going to come up to me and you're going to say something like, well, I never really liked history. And of course, I mean also the Bible. But now, though I'm not going to be a historian, at least I can watch the History Channel, or at least I can now look at my Bible differently. Because in many respects, those who have been churched before, in especially in traditional, you know, denominations, etc., in some respects, they're sort of immune to yeah. looking at the Bible in a fresh way. And so that's also a very particular challenge to deal with. And so I have to be very prayerful and try to figure out, all right, what type of audience do I have? What type of questions are they asking? You know, and then, then my own approach has to be at least tweaked a little bit, maybe not overhauled, but tweaked to try to respond to the needs of a particular group. And that's not always easy. And, I'm, and if I'm too caught up in what I'm doing and wanting to be the actor rather than the person who's simply being the facilitator, which is, to me is always a constant battle, if that's the case, then then I'm I'm not even going to notice it, uh, and then that doesn't have good results. Wendy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have kind of a stream of consciousness going here, and I, I, I guess the 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 
the thing that started it was, you know, again, back, how do you encourage, motivate your audience, your students, uh, the relational network to get in the book? I mean, that's, that's the big question I'm asking. Yeah. I don't know what else to say that so, I okay. haven't already said. Okay. So you plagiarize yourself. All right. Yeah. Okay. Right, right. No, I'm agreeing <laughs> with what my colleagues here have said. I, it's a tough job and each audience is different. Like Mark was saying, and you, you do have to, it's not a one size fits all. I mean, if you're speaking on what? Sunday morning to a church group, that's different than a classroom of students Absolutely. who never opened the Bible versus seminary students. So there's a lot of individualization that has to yeah, happen. I wish, I've often said as a pastor, I wish I could have, you know, given top quizzes and exams. It might have really helped, you know. <laughs> you know, if you what? can't get real genuine interest, at least you can get compliance. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You will learn. I remember uh, Larry Crabb telling a story many years ago about counseling a student when he was at Denver. And I think they worked together for a couple of years. And one day he was walking across campus, beautiful sunny day in, in Colorado. And there were some guys like lemmings, you know, on a little knoll on a picnic blanket, having a coffee or whatever. And anyway, he stopped and talked to the guys and said, how are y'all doing? And this one student started getting into the counselee role. Well, Dr. Crabb and started to, and he, he stopped and said, Oh, you mean like, how am I doing? He goes, yeah, how are you doing? Oh, I'm enjoying the day. And Crabb sat on the blanket and talked to these guys for about 45 minutes. Fast forward, Larry was doing some conference and a lot, you know, what's going to happen here. And a line of students or uh, conferees are standing in line to talk to him when it's all done. And Larry tells the story about feeling rather accomplished and smug and arrogant. And this kid's coming up to him and they talk for a few minutes. He goes, when you look back on our time together, what was like a turning point, an insight for you, you know, where you really started growing? And he goes, remember that day you stopped on the grounds to just talk to me like a person? (laughs) (laughs) And it illustrates to me the you have a dynamic, all of you do, you're gifted individuals and you teach and you're infectious. That's why I'm talking to you. You're infectious in my life, but it's that cup of coffee with that individual. It's that one-on-one relationship with Jesus, with the seven key people in the gospel. It's that the gospel now is a person talking to you. I care about you. This is the living word of God. This is truth. This is where I found forgiveness. This is where I find hope. And it almost seems we can't extricate that from any of this discussion that true teaching is probably going to take place. I remember studying the whole parent language, the word form for teaching, the Daske in, in the New Testament, all Ringsdorf, incredible, like 27 pages in Kittle. And I remember he made this one comment. He said, you cannot separate the life and works of Jesus Christ apart from the word teaching. But he wasn't standing in front of students. He wasn't standing in front of a synagogue very often that we know of. He, wasn't, he was with men and women walking across Galilee, walking across the desert, walking across Judea. And it seems to me that may be one of the linchpins we've not talked about. Well, in the book of Acts, when the opposition was uh, interrogating the disciples or or trying to figure out, it says there that they had been with Jesus. And that's, you know, that's part of it, which is, again, our our whole COVID sort of uh, arrangement. I'm amused by these debates about you know, is online learning. Yeah, online learning is fine if you just want to sort of get a rote understanding of things and be able to do well on an exam or something like that. But this is particularly in the context I'm at in seminary is that we're very much life on life. You know, we're trying to teach these men to be pastors. 
and we, we can give them a great understanding of Greek and Hebrew and how to exegete a passage and, and all of those kinds of things. But part of what we try to do is sort of say, how do you relate? And, and again, it's in a, in a context that we're at where it's all about the text, it's all about the Bible. So it's not, it's not something that is ever unrelated to it because it's always there sort of in the background. I mean, why does anybody have a, want to come to my office? They want to come to my office for counseling, but they know what they're going to get because that's what they get. But that's what they got when I was a pastor. I told people, I said, you know, if you don't like my preaching, you're going to hate my counseling because uh, <laughs> you're just going to get you, you, people say, well, I, I feel like you're preaching right at me. Well, if you come to my office and you're the only one, what do you expect? I mean, this it'll is, be worse. Yeah, it'll be worse. <laughs> but it's again, it's that. Uh, and I think Wendy was kind of uh, alluding to that. I mean, the point is, is this life on, you know, it's the, something that's caught as well as being taught. It's our involvement with the tech. It's our, it's what this, these scriptures have done for me and how my life is impacted by that. And these stories have been a, of personal interest to me until you feel like you were there with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, one of my pet thieves. I don't use the <laughs> Babylonian. Uh, the text does. The text uses their Babylonian names. I know. I, know. I do. I know. I do. Chapter but, three. You know, it's, it's it, it uses their Babylonian names like twenty times. I, I know. I know. When you get to heaven, I think they want to be identified by the Hebrew name. That's my opinion. But nevertheless, the point is that you know you again. There's a. These were living, breathing people who had a had an encounter with a living and active God. And in the New Testament, who had an encounter, the apostles had an encounter with with uh, the incarnate Christ. I mean, that's where, again, it's, it's in the text. It's, it's what the text says. But, I mean, you, you, you're you supposed to try and, you know, see that as more than just the, that story. So it has to be lived by us in front of these people, and we have to be the embodiment of that. Kevin, what strikes me just from what you've been saying, um, I this past week, for whatever reasons, I was reading the resurrection account in the Gospel of John, and it just struck me, this progression of people going to the tomb and what they did and what their reactions were. And at the end of it, Mary Magdalene runs back to the disciples because Jesus has given um, her a message to deliver to them. Mm -hmm. And the text says, the first thing she said to them was, I've seen the Lord. Mm -hmm. And then she gave him his message. Yeah. And yeah. the first thing that she shared was herself and her experience oh, and what had changed her life. Right. And then here's the message she gave me to tell yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. And it yeah. just hit me that that is that's that connects with people. Yeah, life connects with people. That's great. That's I think it was uh, Spurgeon that said, no one ever outgrows the scriptures. It widens and deepens with our years. And that's that's sort of my morning by morning new verses I read. I never saw that before. I know I've read it a lot of times, but it teaches us still. Dr. Zuber, Dr. Chevalier, Dr. Witter, gosh, thank you so much. I hope you'll do this again. And truly, thanks for what you guys do. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.